Take your Bible and go to Daniel chapter 7, please. Last week we began this chapter, which begins the second half of the book of Daniel, and we learned that God gave to Daniel a night vision, the first of four visions that um, comprise the majority of the rest of this book. This was like a dream, a vision in the night, and it came at the time when the last ruler of Babylon had begun to reign. And so the question that Daniel and all the Jews would have been asking was, what does our future hold? What's coming? They had been sent to Babylon, sent to exile by God as discipline for their sin. And they lost nearly everything except their own lives in the process. But now that Babylon was going to fall, what next? And the answer was that the world would be like a turbulent sea whipped up by the winds of heaven. And out from the turbulent sea, Daniel saw something like four beasts that arose, representing four violent world empires. So Babylon and then three more. And out of the fourth empire arose a boastful ruler who tried to destroy the people of God. And in the vision, as Daniel watched, it seemed certain that this ruler was going to succeed until suddenly Daniel saw a scene in heaven. He saw a throne room that was also a courtroom, a really terrifying courtroom. And the judge was the ancient of days. And his appearance was holy and eternal, unlike any other judge. And his throne was pouring out fire while an uncountable crowd of servants and witnesses looked on. And the court was convened and the books were opened because this judge had all the evidence that he needed. And suddenly that boastful, persecuting little horn in his kingdom were judged and were sentenced and were executed by fire, which means that the people of God win because the Ancient of Days is on their side. And so that vision was God's way of picturing the future for the people of God. Now, what we're going to do this morning is continue into the next scene in Daniel's vision. And in it, we find one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Old Testament and something that is tremendously relevant for our day. So last week we finished at verse 11. Let's back up to verse 9 and read verses 9 through 12. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Just a brief comment on verse 12. It is a mysterious verse. 
Remember that Daniel saw four beasts come up out of the sea, apparently in sequence, one after another, one empire defeating another. But verse 12 says that what he saw in his vision was that when the fourth beast was destroyed, somehow the other three were still living, though they didn't have dominion any longer. So four beasts come up from the sea. They seem to conquer each other. But when the fourth beast is destroyed, the others still exist. Um, It sounds a little bit like chapter 2 when you have this sequence of kingdoms in the statue that defeat one another, but then the stone kingdom defeats all of them. Um, So at this point in Daniel, there's no other explanation of what that means. But it clues us into the fact that there's something unusual going on with the timing of these four kingdoms. Uh, So we will probably come back to that later on. Today we want to move on, though, to verses 13 and 14. So let's read them now. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's our text for this morning. And first, I want to comment about the timing of verses 13 and 14. And basically, I just, we just want to note that verses 13 and 14 don't necessarily come after verses 2 through 12 in a sequence as if they're what happened next. It might be that this is what happened next after verses 11 and 12. But can you see how verse 13 kind of sounds like the beginning of a new scene? You see, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So maybe that is what happens next chronologically, um, but not necessarily. The point is not when in verses 13 and 14, the point is whom, who is this person who comes up to the ancient of days? And that is the riddle of verse 13. The riddle of verse 13. Remember that verses 13 and 14 take place in the same location as the previous scene. It's a throne room, but it's also a courtroom with the ancient of days and the servants and the witnesses and the fiery throne. And so even though we don't know the exact timing of the two scenes, they're both in the same place in heaven. So now verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So who is this? Our first clue is that he looks human because it says there came one like a son of man. Now, last week we saw that certain characteristics of God, the father could be illustrated with human characteristics like white hair or old age. But that's not what's going on here. This goes further than that. This phrase, son of man, tells us that the one who comes up to the throne now appears to be a a child of humanity, a true human being. So that's our first clue about who it is. Our second clue is that he arrives in an interesting vehicle. What is it? 
What's his vehicle? Clouds. As if the clouds are escorting him or the clouds are his chariot. Now, in the Old Testament, it is the glory of the Lord that is connected to clouds. When Israel was in the wilderness, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. On Mount Sinai, God came down to them in a thick cloud. In the temple, the presence of God, first of all, was over the mercy seat in a cloud. And then the cloud of God's glory filled the entire temple at its dedication. And even more importantly, in the Old Testament, it is God who rides the clouds. Psalm 104, he makes the clouds his chariot. Isaiah 19, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Nahum says the clouds are like the dust of his feet, like the evidence that God has come by. Now, that's all figurative imagery. We don't mean that today God's especially here because it's especially cloudy. It's figurative imagery for the coming of God's presence. So what's the point when the one who comes up to the Ancient of Days looks like he's coming on the clouds? Based on everything else in the Old Testament, the point would be that it's God. So here's an impossible riddle. The one who comes up to the Ancient of Days appears to be a son of humanity, truly human, Yet he comes on the clouds of deity, indicating that this must be God. So there are your blanks, the riddle of verse 13, son of man, yet God. But that's not the only part of verse 13 that's mysterious, because the end of the verse also says that this person was presented to the ancient of days. As if they brought him there to present him to the Ancient of Days. Now, our first thought would be that this must be the next person who has a trial. The next person on the docket. Because we're in a courtroom, and we just had one person tried, the little horn. And so now someone else is presented to the judge. This must be the next court case. But with that in mind, verse 14 has a surprise for us. It says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So the surprise of verse 14 is that it's not a trial. It's a coronation. This isn't the next person on the courtroom docket. This is someone arriving for his coronation. While earth is this tumultuous sea of empire after empire and ruler after ruler, up in heaven, there's a coronation ceremony going on. The Ancient of Days is giving a kingdom to a king. Now, we know from earlier in the book of Daniel that every king receives his kingdom from the Ancient of Days, right? Daniel 4, verse 17. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. So every earthly ruler has their authority from the sovereign hand of God. But what verse 14 describes is a coronation unlike any other for a king and a kingdom unlike any that has come before. Number one, to start with, it's different because this coronation ceremony takes place at the throne of God in heaven. 
Joe Biden is president because of the sovereign hand of God, but his inauguration was not at the throne of God. So this king is different because his coronation is heavenly. Number two, he's different because his rule is universal. Verse 14 continues, and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, again, we've seen earlier in Daniel that earthly rulers like to claim that they rule everybody. The emperors of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome all boasted about how they ruled the whole earth, but they didn't. (laughs) But what we read in verse 14 is not that kind of arrogance or, you know, political hyperbole. The Ancient of Days actually gives to this king a universal rule. So this is a kingdom like never before because it's universal. And thirdly, this is different because his rule is forever. Verse 14 again, And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now again, earthly rulers love to talk about ruling forever. They love to hear people say, O king, live for 30 years. No. O king, live forever. And nobody knows. I mean, everybody knows that's not going to happen, right? Nobody thinks he's going to live forever. Except maybe this king's different. What, what would you have to do to have a kingdom that never ended as a king? Two things would have to be true. Number one, you could never be defeated, right? Because if you're defeated, your kingdom ends. And number two, you can never die. So to have a forever rule, he cannot be defeated and he cannot die. And that is exactly what is described in verse 14. So this king is different because his coronation ceremony takes place at the throne of God in heaven, because his rule is universal, and because his rule is forever, he cannot be defeated, and he cannot die. Somehow, the person crowned by the Ancient of Days meets all those criteria. And by the way, we should make a little side note here that'll be important in a couple of minutes. 600 years before this, God had promised to King David that there would be a descendant of his who ruled on the throne of Israel who would reign forever. And so it seems like whoever is being crowned king in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 is the fulfillment of that promise. A king from the lineage of David who would reign forever. Okay, so now we have the full mystery of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Who could be son of man, truly human, And God coming on the clouds. What king could have his coronation ceremony at the throne of the ancient of days in heaven, rule a truly universal kingdom, never be defeated, and never die? All of that seems impossible, idealistic, just a dream that a ruler like that could ever exist until you meet Jesus. 
Remember that even if you were to agree with the most cynical, unbelieving scholars who believe that this book is just a very clever little human invention, even they say that the book of Daniel was written 160-some years before Jesus. In reality, it was written 540 years before Jesus. And yet, despite those centuries, we find that Jesus fulfills each part of Daniel's vision. And it's not just that he fits the impossible description. He also said he was the fulfillment. Okay, so consider this. The phrase son of man is what this person is called in Daniel 7.13. Son of man is the most common way that the gospel writers refer to Jesus, other than his name, other than Jesus, of course. But in terms of titles and descriptions, there's nothing else even close. They call him son of man more than anything else. And son of man was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. I think it's like 78 times in the Gospels. So, Son of Man, which means that Jesus was truly human, was his favorite way to refer to himself, and it was the Gospel writer's favorite way to refer to him. And, add this, he was crucified because he called himself the Son of Man. The charge against Jesus was blasphemy. And the primary evidence was that he called himself the Son of Man. Now, why would you execute someone for blasphemy when all he did was say he was a human? Let's go look at it. Mark chapter 14. You've got a marker in Daniel 7, right? So we can come back. This is the account of Jesus before this council, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council that was allowed to have some significant authority in Jerusalem, even though the Romans actually had the political authority. Mark 14, verse 55. Now the chief priests... And the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make to all of our empty charges? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the anointed one, the Christ, the Son of the blessed, the Son of God. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So look at verse 62 and think about Daniel 7. Jesus speaks of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and seated by the throne of God, which sounds a whole lot like Daniel 7 and is exactly what the Jewish council understood him to mean. In other words, claiming to be a son of man, claiming to be human is not blasphemy. Claiming to be the son of man in Daniel 7, that son of man, is a whole different story. Because the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is not just a human, he's also God. He's not just a man, he's a king. He's not just a temporary king, he's an eternal king. He's not just a partial king, he's a universal king. And by the way, in verse 62, when he refers to being seated at the right hand of power, he's referring to Psalm 110.1, and he's claiming to be that king from the lineage of David who will reign forever. So Jesus was crucified for claiming to be the son of David in Psalm 110.1 and the son of man in Daniel 7. God and man, eternal king, unstoppable, universal. There are many other passages we could look at about Jesus as the son of man if we had time this morning including the passages where he talks about coming again in the clouds. Basically, Jesus talked about being, uh, you, you can picture like two stages. Jesus comes in the clouds to the throne of God for coronation, Daniel 7. But he says, I'm going to come in the clouds to earth someday to finalize my kingdom on earth. So that's over in Matthew 24. But for now, we just want to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the mystery of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Who could be truly human and truly God? Jesus. He has always been the eternal God, God the Son, and yet he was born as a human baby, lived a human life, died a human death, fully God and fully man. What king could have his coronation ceremony at the throne of the Ancient of Days in heaven? It's Jesus. That's not only in Daniel 7, it's in Psalm 2 and Romans 1 and Hebrews 1 and Philippians 2. What king could rule a truly universal kingdom? Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. What king could never be defeated? Jesus. He'll crush all the nations with a rod of iron. What king could never die? The one who died for our sin and yet conquered death and rose and lives and holds the keys of death and of hell. Daniel wouldn't have understood all that, as we do as we look back on it now. But Daniel was able to see and be comforted that there was an amazing ruler coming. So, big picture Daniel 7. The question is, what's the future for God's people? And one huge part of the answer is, there's a very special ruler coming. A ruler unlike any other. A ruler who is impossibly amazing. A dream come true and yet true. And today we know exactly who that ruler is because he came. And you don't just know who that ruler is. You know that ruler, don't you? Your savior, your ruler, your shepherd already today. All right, so there you go. That's great theology or great 
Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Daniel 7, 13, 14 is like a course in the doctrine of Jesus. But what impact is that doctrine supposed to make in our hearts? And to answer that, we have to go back to Daniel 7 and put the two acts, the two scenes together. So turn back there if you're not already. Remember that verses 2 through 12 are like one scene and verses 13 and 14 are like another scene. In the first scene, you have beasts that represent kingdoms and their rulers. And what are those empires and their rulers like? Well, they're pictured as beasts. So that's a starting point, right? They're beastly and not kind beasts. Not the monster at the end of this book, if you know what I'm talking about. Not cute pets, but vicious beasts like the bear who's got ribs hanging out of his mouth while he looks for something else to eat. And not just vicious beasts, but weird and frightening hybrid beasts, a lion with wings, a leopard with wings, another beast so strange it can't be really pinned to any one animal, a beast with ten horns on its head. And all of the beasts are power-hungry, trying to break and smash and trample and devour everything they can. What's the point of all those vivid pictures? Israel, if you want to know what your future is going to be like, it's going to be like being ruled by things like that. And today, not just for Israel, but also for the church, church, you want to know what your future is going to be like? It's going to be like being ruled by things like that. People like that. Monsters. There have already been monsters, right? cruel, murderous, vicious, power-hungry leaders who held their power at any cost, sometimes at the cost, at the expense of tens of millions of lives. Germany, Poland, Rwanda, Cambodia, Armenia, China, Russia, Uganda, Serbia, not to mention so many more in ancient history, as well as modern-day China, North Korea, Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia, and so on. Familiar names like Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao, and many others that we wouldn't even recognize because our knowledge of the world is so limited. The world is full of monsters. Easy for us to forget in, in comfortable America, though maybe we're forgetting less these days. And despite all that humanity should have learned from the Lenins and Stalins and Maos and Pol Pots and all the and Hitler's of the 20th century, are there still any monsters around? Still any self-serving, lying, unethical, cruel, power-hungry politicians who will do anything to stay in power? Still murderers? Thousands upon thousands of monsters, and there will be still more? Daniel's vision will continue to be true, and you'll live under them. And it is in that light or in that darkness, that we can truly see Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, as they should be seen. In the darkness of a world full of ferocious beasts, we see King Jesus in all his glory, and we love him. 
on your handout is a verse of a hymn by Samuel Rutherford. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And Ian DeGuid writes, Samuel Rutherford, the 17th century Scottish pastor whose words lie behind that hymn, was no stranger to suffering and persecution. As a young man, he was exiled by the church authorities from his beloved parish of Anwath in southern Scotland for writing in defense of the doctrines of grace. As an old man, when the monarchy was reinstated under Charles II, he was charged with high treason for his book in which he argued that even monarchs were subject to the law. When the summons came, the summons to court because of the charge of high treason, when the summons came, however, he responded from his deathbed, tell them I have got a summons already before a superior judge. And I behove to answer. It's necessary for me to answer my first summons. And ere your day come, before I get a chance to show up in your court, I will be where few kings and great folks come. The day is indeed hastening on when the sands of time will run out and the beasts will face their judgment. But for the saints, glory will dwell forever in Emmanuel's land. Maybe we could spend a little bit less time focusing our attention on the monsters of this world and a little bit more time or a lot more time focusing on Jesus. Less time spending our mental energy on these earthly rulers and a lot more time focusing on the beauty and majesty of Christ for there is no king like him. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think on these things, which is to say, think on Christ. Think about his creative power. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Think about his incarnation. This morning I was listening to Graham Kendrick's little song, Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. Think about his humility, the humility to come to earth as a human baby, the humility to be crucified by the people you crafted, pierced by the thorns of your own creation, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about his sinlessness, who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Think about his servanthood. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
Think about his compassion looking on multitudes of sinners and yet being moved with compassion over and over. Think about his sacrifice. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, the price to buy back slaves into freedom, to give his life a ransom for many. First Peter 1, you are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Think about his generosity, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Think about his suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Think about his acceptance, Romans 12. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. The author of Hebrews says he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Think about his gentleness that a king would say to his people, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Think about his power. He is the stone from Daniel 2 that will pulverize all the kingdoms of this world. Revelation says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Think about his authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Think about his victory. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us that victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about his justice. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth will come a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Think about his worthiness. The book of Revelation describes this scene in heaven when the scroll is brought in, the scroll that contains God's plans to end all the horrors of the beasts on this earth. But who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? And John weeps because there's nobody. And Revelation 5 says, no, Jesus is worthy. Think on him and consider Has there ever been a king like this? He's not just a king that we're dreaming about for some day. Yes, we want him to come again and 
to bring his kingdom fully to earth, but he already came five centuries after Daniel. And he's our king today. Do you already know him? Do you already love him? Do you already serve him? Did you come to this building this morning because you are a follower of Jesus? Is that why you're here? Do you read the headlines and see the monsters and then take your Bible and with a tear in your eye say, has there ever been a king like this? And he's my king. And you can't take him away from me. And he's going to keep all his promises. And he's going to come again. And he's going to be mine forever. So in a world full of beasts, let's turn our eyes upon Jesus.